Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. Yes, that is exactly where the Oprah interview happened with Harry and Megan. I haven't watched it yet, but I hear it is uh, kind of exciting. So I'm going to check that out this uh, weekend probably uh, as I, you know, veg out kind of just fill my brain with garbage. Anyway, hey, listen, before we get started, I want to remind you that there's a website called wealthformula.com where there's all sorts of resources for you to uh, take as a part of being a member of the Wealth Formula Nation, including uh, various uh, things that you could download, free stuff, free books. And it's also where you can join the Wealth Formula Accredited Investor Club that's really the, you know, if you're an accredited investor, that's where you can take some of these ideas, a lot of these ideas that we, you know, talk about on this show and, uh, you know, make it so that they're not just sitting out in the ether, but rather put to work. It is an investing group. It is a, uh, a it requires you to be accredited, et cetera. But if you want to check it out, go to wealthformula.com and look up at the Accredited Investor Club. And of course, if you decide to do that, there is a little bit of an onboarding process, but we'd love to have you on board if that's something you'd like to do. Now, as for today's show, let's, uh, I want to, I want to, so this is going to be, a, this is an interesting uh, show, right? This is about macroeconomics and we have Richard Duncan on again, you know, to discuss what's going on in the economy. And I got to tell you, macroeconomics is, to me, is very, very interesting but I also feel like I'm still sort of, you know, grasping to completely understand it. I, I Maybe I should spend more time sort of going back to the books and understanding some fundamentals, but I find it a little bit challenging at times. And I think, you know, when, when you listen to this interview, uh, I think what you're going to find, if you're like me, is that, yeah, there's you get it, but then there's some parts that you might just feel like, hmm, yeah, I guess I don't quite get that, but I'm listening. That you got to keep doing that in order to learn more and more, and that's that's what I encourage you to do. But here's here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a little bit of some broad brushed um, concepts that I think are important before you listen to this podcast. So I'll give you a little bit of foundation. And first, let's start with this idea of what's going on in the economy right now with regard to. Uh, monetary policy. And what is monetary policy? Monetary policy is basically policy from the Federal Reserve. They, they basically have two functions, right? They have not two functions, but they have really only two powers. One is to set the Fed funds rate, which is you know the interest rate that, that banks borrow at. And then the other one is the ability to essentially print money, which is called quantitative easing. Right now, the monetary policy, uh, as opposed to you know uh, what we'll talk about in terms of fiscal policy, monetary policy is very, very loose right now. And what that means is very low interest rates and lots of quantitative easing. And what this really means is that it's really bullish for asset prices, okay? Now, why is that? Why are low interest rates or any kind of borrowing rates why are they bullish for asset prices? Think about it this way. If, if, if you couldn't borrow, right, or if, or if interest rates were extremely high, imagine how much 
housing costs would be different. Okay. For, for perspective, okay, let's say you live in uh, Santa Barbara here where, you know, it's pretty ordinary for, you know, a middle class size home to be $3 million. But how many people are out there just putting $3 million down in cash? Now, there's lots here in Santa Barbara, but that's not typical, right? In most of the country, what you have is people, you know, want to buy a million-dollar house or a half-million-dollar house or whatever, and they get a mortgage. And they get a mortgage because that makes it so that they can afford to spend, you know, half-million or million-dollars on a house. Now, if you had, if you did not have the ability to borrow, then you would not be seeing prices of houses like you do. You really wouldn't be seeing million dollar, you know, two million, three million dollar houses uh, in such quantities because very, very few people would be able to just put down that cash. And additionally, think about interest rates now. If interest rates are higher, you can afford less of a house, right? Because you're paying more interest and you're paying less for less house. So you're paying a much bigger payment for a house. So you can't afford as much of a house as you could when interest rates are extremely low, like now. So I bring all this up to, uh, you know, just to illustrate this concept of why interest rates, when they're really low uh, and monetary policy is low, or monetary policy is loose, rather, that that is really bullish for asset prices, right? It's a very simplistic description, but I think it's uh, important to understand that if you don't already. Now, in terms of non-monetary policy, fiscal uh, policy, and that's basically the government, right? And we also have a huge stimulus coming from the government, $1.9 trillion uh, plus stimulus package to go along with everything else already, and that's even more bullish for the economy. Then there's a high savings rate, meaning a lot of people have got money in the bank right now. And then you put that together with this fact that people have been, you know, stuck at home for the last year and vaccinations are around the corner for everybody. A lot of people have been vaccinated, but, you know, it, it sounds like by the end of the summer, everybody should be able to be vaccinated and be potentially able to move around free. And to me, that additional element of it is really key because it's basically the unleashing of pent-up demand. And again, that goes along with the entire thesis, an entire thesis for an economic boom headed our way, right? Now, here's the thing. A hot economy like that usually makes the Fed put on the brakes, so the question is, what happens if and when all this happens? Does the Fed suddenly say, oh, man, you know, this is looking pretty hot, and within a year starts to raise rates? You know, we call that tightening of monetary policy, increasing interest rates, maybe, you know, reversing quantitative easing. Um, and when that happens, the problem with that is that it slows down the economy, right? And are we in a situation where even if we get kind of hot that, you know, putting on the brakes on a hot economy potentially backfire on us because we've been in such a dire uh, trait? I mean, so that's the question, right? And so I think the Fed is sort of answering that a little bit because they've been changing their policies a little bit. You know, traditionally, they have wanted inflation to, you know, target about 2%. Okay, and a lot of people talk about how much there's two percent, you know, and we're in massive month inflation right now. That's just not true. If you look at the numbers, we've had very little inflation over the last decade. But the Fed is saying now is okay. Listen, we're not going to necessarily target two percent and say if we're starting to see ourselves getting close to two percent, we're going to slam on the brakes and increase interest rates and stop quantitative easing. What we're going to do is we're going to look at this in a broader perspective. We're going to say, hey, you know, we're going to target 2%, but we want an average of 2%. So if we're going to hit 2%, we're not going to put on the brakes. We're going to let it ride, right? We're going to let this ride. And that's a big change in the Fed's policy. So the idea is if, you know, inflation hits 2%, they're not going to automatically like slam on the brakes. They're going to let it run. 
and they're going to see if, you know, the average is seemingly uh, much more than 2%, and then they may consider at that point slamming on the brakes or you know, whatever, Not maybe not slamming on the brakes, but slowing things down. But bottom line is the Fed, from its own policy, what it's saying right now, will continue to have loose monetary policy for the foreseeable future. And I'm not guessing that. That's what the Fed is saying. Now, you may know that interest rates for mortgages, you know, we used the example before on houses and mortgages, but they really actually don't depend very much on what that Fed's fund rate is, right? The the rate that the Fed is, oh, the Fed is setting rates at zero. That's that's really not what we look at so much for uh, interest rates on mortgage. Interest rates on mortgages and other asset, uh, other kind of lending often relies on the bond market, specifically the 10-year treasury for mortgages. So uh, the 10-year treasury, for simplicity, let's understand the treasury rises, the 10-year treasury rises when there is a fear of inflation in the markets. And that's what's happened very recently um, as we saw the 10-year treasury spike and that resulted in an ass price sell-off. You saw that, you know, uh, for example, a lot of people have Tesla, and Tesla so, was sold off like mad, right? And that's basically because of these 10-year treasury uh, yield spikes. So what will control the spikes in yield? Because that's something that needs to be controlled too. I mean, it's not just the Fed funds rate, right? So the idea is that the Fed will control this through quantitative easing. Yes, quantitative easing is the thing that you think of when you hear about the Fed printing money, right? I mean, they are. They're essentially creating money out of nothing, uh, which increases money in the circulation and in and of itself stimulates the economy. But it uses that money to buy treasuries, including the 10-year treasury, to keep those kinds of interest rates down on long-term lending like mortgages. And fundamentally, that's the plan to continue to do so, even if that means uh, more aggressive quantitative easing than currently done. Almost like a dynamic quantitative easing just to flatten out the proverbial yield curve. So bottom line is that it seems to be the signal from the government and from the Fed that even if we have a booming economy this time around, uh, we should not expect uh, for the Fed or for the government necessarily to try to prematurely slow down that boom. And that is a very, very important thing for us to understand as investors. And, um, you know, right now, I think we are in the precipice of a, uh, you know, asset prices are going to go way up. So, and, and there's a green light for any potential inflation. So what does that tell you again as an investor? It tells you that you probably should no longer sit on those sidelines. Um, as we talked about, your money uh, is going to lose value if it's just sitting in the bank. I had a conversation recently with uh, an investor and um, you know the, he had some general sort of psychological hurdles about not spending uh, that money and leaving it in the bank. But the problem with that is in an inflationary environment, that's Almost the only, you know, it's one of the few ways where you absolutely guarantee you're going to lose money because that money will lose value over time. And if we think and we believe, as I've just said, that inflation is going, you know, it, we're going to have inflationary pressures and asset prices are going to go way up, that means that we should be making sure that we have much of our resources exposed to those asset classes so that, you know, we actually can benefit. From that boom. Hopefully that's not confusing to you, but it very well might be. Uh, I would suggest, though, you listen uh, now to this interview that I did with uh, Richard Duncan. Now, it's going to get more complicated than what I said, but uh, listen to it. It's important stuff. And I also encourage you to potentially, um, you know, if you're interested in, in, in becoming more of an expert in this stuff, to consider uh, Richard's newsletter, MacroWatch, at MacroWatch.com. Anyway, a talk with Richard uh, coming up after this. Oh, and one more thing. After this interview, I want you to stick around and listen to my daughter's song called Worst Year Ever. She is 11 years old, and uh, she's got this song out on Spotify, blah, 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 a bunch, whatever those streaming networks are. I don't even know what they are anymore. Apple, uh, you know, 
Spotify. You know, I'm like the old guy here trying to figure out all these different things. But listen to it. She's 11, and uh, it's uh, called Worst Year Ever, and it's kind of fun. And she made me promise that I would put it on the podcast. So with that, uh, we will be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is no stranger to the show. He's been on multiple times. He is uh, a favorite, for sure, um, for his sort of more secular view, shall I say, of the economy, where it's uh, it's not uh, stuck in dogma of uh, some of the stuff you have in the uh, podcast ecosystem. His name is Richard Duncan. Uh, he's well known uh, in the space. He's been on the show multiple times. Uh, he's frequently a guest on the Robert Kiyosaki show, and he is the editor of Macro Watch, which we'll talk about in a little bit as well. But in the meantime, Richard, welcome back. And you are in Asia, right? Buck, thank you for having me back. Yes, that's right. I live in Asia. Great. I live in Thailand. That's right. That's right. How are things going over there? COVID under control? Yes, uh, thank heavens. Um, generally speaking, it's, it's been a very big mystery, but in total, Thailand has had less than 26,000 cases and I think 84 deaths in total. And yeah. um, It is until, a mystery, right? I mean, there's so many things that you could point to and then look at it somewhere else that there seems to be a lot of disease that, that has the same variable. But uh, I guess the good news is hopefully this will be a bad memory in a couple of years from now. You know, we're still going to remember it, uh, I think, in in some regard for the next year. We're going to probably still feel the after effects of it. But, um, uh, well, good good to have you on the show. And um, I just want to jump right into it. And, you know, you, uh, MacroWatch is a uh, phenomenal resource, which, uh, you know, I've alluded to. And I, I really do think that uh, people should, um, you know, to subscribe to. But I, I want to talk about what's going on in the economy right now. And let's start with this. So maybe I'm wrong, but from my non-economist point of view, you know, it seems to me that the worst of this pandemic economy and the damage of that might, might, might actually be behind us uh, now and that we are left with, you know, historical loose monetary and fiscal policy. Seems like it's a recipe for a potential economic boom ahead. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Well, yes, it's hard not to agree with what you have said. I mean, hope, hopefully, surely, the worst is past in terms of the of the pandemic, and things will begin to return to normal with the vaccines being rolled out. And after all, such a large number of Americans have already contracted the disease. Add that to the number of people who have been vaccinated, and it's not surprising that the number of cases seems to be dropping very quickly there now, although it's still incredibly high. But hopefully by the summer, it will be under much more control and things can begin to go back to normal. And as you said, monetary policy is extraordinarily loose. The Fed is creating $120 billion every month and pumping it into the financial markets. And at the same time, we have very large budget deficits with more stimulus on the way from the next plan, the next stimulus plan that's going through Congress now should be passed somewhere quite close to $1.9 trillion sometime this month. That will, will also be pumped into the economy. And that should create a very strong, all altogether, that should create a, a very, very good year in terms of strong economic growth. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, I think back to, you know, the way uh, various policies were um, put into place uh, during the last uh, financial crisis. And um, there's a big difference, par partially out of necessity, but it, 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 it seems to be a, sort of a better uh, experiment in which is that in the last, fin uh, in the last, in 2008, 2009, it was, you know, a lot of money going to the banks and then the banks deciding who got it and whether or not they wanted to lend it out. And here, this is truly a helicopter money phenomenon. Right, where you're getting it to the people who need to spend it and will spend it. And that is a major difference. That's right. Checks are being sent directly to households and to businesses. And so the money, there's no doubt that this stimulus is reaching the public. So it seems like inflation would be inevitable. But then again, we thought again, we, we thought it would be in 2008, 2009 as well. So so what do you think? Is is inflation inevitable? And you know, how does the Fed react to that? Well, so 
we've already started to see commodity prices move up. Of course, they moved down sharply during the pandemic. But now commodity price inflation is, is back, and it's likely to become much higher over the months ahead. But commodities are wildly volatile. They, they shoot up, you know, it's not unusual for them to go up 20, 30, even 40%. And then within a year, they're down another 20, 30%. So the Fed tends to disregard movements in commodity prices. They're so volatile. Instead, what the Fed looks at is core inflation, which strips out food and energy price movements. So if you look at the core inflation number, and the Fed's favorite measure of inflation, there, there are a few different kinds, consumer price inflation. But what they look at is it's called personal consumption expenditure price index. So it's just an inflation measure. And right now, it's 1.5%. And, and, and just to stop you there real quick, just, just for yeah. real. So what goes into that basket? I don't, I can't give you a breakdown, yeah. but it's personal consumption expenditure. So everything that individuals yeah. spend. For so just like food and, you know, maybe the cost of gasoline and all those like sort well, of. Well, no, food and gasoline are stripped out. This is core personal consumption expenditure. So okay. no food and no energy. So this would be, uh, this does include computers, tennis shoes, clothes, movie tickets, telephone bills, Okay. Uh, everything except food and energy, Got it. even uh, even rent. It seems sort of strange that you would, uh, <laughs> that they would take those out since they seem the most important, right? But at any rate. Well, well yeah. but it's important to understand why they do. Because if you don't take them out, because the food and energy prices are so volatile, they swing up and down so fast. The Fed just simply can't control the economy so effectively that it can, you know, what's it going to do? Put the uh, interest rates up to 10% because right. we have a jump in oil prices? Yeah. No, that would crash the economy. For so sure. you've got to strip those things out because over, you know, they're just too wild to control. And you've got to look at everything else because that's, that's what matters. The, we know the commodity prices are going to bounce up and down, but what we there's nothing that really can be done about that. But what we don't want to see is the price of everything else moving up as it was doing in the late 1960s and especially in the first half of the 1970s when inflation got up to uh, double digits, mm -hmm. even, uh, even at the core level when you strip out uh, the sure. oil price shock and everything else. So they look at the core inflation. And right now, as of January, it was just up 1.5% year on year. And the Fed's target is 2%. Mm -hmm. So they target 2% inflation. They think that's the, the best level of inflation. That's what they aim at. And they haven't been able to hit 2% inflation on a consistent basis uh, going back uh, for decades. If you look at the average from the year 2000, it's been, I think, 1.7%, I believe. And if you look at it from uh, 2010, it's been 1.6% on average over that period. So they've been undershooting their inflation target for a long time. And they have now announced that they've changed their policy in quite a significant way. Rather than targeting 2% exactly, they have said, since we have undershot 2% for so long, we're now going to aim not at precisely 2%, but we're going to aim at an average of 2% over the long run, mm -hmm. meaning they're going to tolerate a higher level of inflation above 2%. Right. So that's, uh, that's important because we are probably going to see inflation move up. But the, the real thing that is most important as a driver of inflation at the core level is wages. Wages. And right now, 10 million fewer Americans have jobs than in February last year. So a whole lot of people are out of work. And it's going to take a lot of stimulus to put this, these 10 million people back to work. And even when they were at work last year, uh, the wage inflation was only about, I think, three and a half percent at the peak off the top of my uh, mm. top of my head. And even then, the core inflation throughout the economy was still below the, the, the Fed's two percent target. The unemployment rate was down to three and a half percent at one point, which was the lowest level since the 1960s. And still there was no wage inflation and still there was no inflation at the core consumer price level. So until we absorb these 10 million people who don't have jobs today, 
we're not going to see any wage inflation, it seems to me. Uh, and it's, that's what the Fed says as well. And so it's going to take a while to put all these people back to work before we should be terribly frightened about a very sharp surge in inflation. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I want to uh, talk about next a little bit is, uh, you know, obviously the Fed has uh, control of the Fed funds rate uh, and, and its effect on interest rates that way. But there's also something happening in the bond markets where we saw a recent spike in yields. Will you talk a little bit about that and what the significance is there? Right. Well, just one more word on uh, inflation. So a very important issue here is not just putting these 10 million Americans back to work because we have a different kind of economy than we had 50 years ago. 50 years ago, trade between countries balanced. We were on a, a Bretton Woods system. And under the Bretton Woods system, dollars were pegged to gold. And if we had a big trade deficit, we would lose our gold. And the same applied for every other country. So at that time, trade imbalances over a long period of time were impossible and trade balanced. But after the Bretton Woods system broke down in the early 1970s, suddenly the, real, the U.S. discovered it could buy things from other countries and it didn't have to pay with gold anymore. Right. So our trade surplus, our trade deficit exploded. And that meant that our economy was no longer limited to the domestic economy, the, the number of workers that we have in the United States and the amount of factory capacity that we have in the United States. Suddenly, our economy was a global economy with nearly 8 billion people, 2 billion of whom still live on less than $3 a day. So we have not only the 10 million people to put back to work in the U.S., but we've got an entire global economy with enormous excess capacity of everything. And that's why we didn't have any inflation before the crisis, this pandemic hit, when the unemployment rate was down to 3.5% at a 50-year low. There was still no inflation because we buy so much stuff from overseas and we buy it using, you know, from countries that have very, very low labor cost. Right. Sort of, sort of ex exporting our own inflation. Uh, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say we're exporting our own inflation. We are just uh, importing because we can, globalization is very deflationary for us. Mm -hmm. If we buy things that are cheaper in other countries, that drives down the cost of the things that we buy here. And so that's one reason why the Fed hasn't been able to hit its 2% inflation target for the last 20 years and longer. Right. And why there's been extreme deflationary pressure in all of the developed countries for the last 20, 30 years. So this, that's another reason that it's going to be difficult or more, more difficult to see a surge in inflation in the United States, at least a sustained surge because if prices start to go, if labor costs do start to go up here after we put these 10 million people back to work, then those jobs, some of them, a lot of them will just move to countries where you can pay people $5 a day or $10 a day. So inflation is hard to uh, bring back, even with a lot of stimulus. So we don't really know how much stimulus the economy can, can take before it results in meaningfully higher rates of inflation. But we do know that the Fed said they're going to tolerate a level of inflation above their 2% target for quite some time. So the Fed is telling us again and again in every speech they make and in, in the minutes to their uh, FOMC meetings, they're saying they're not going to tighten the federal funds rate and they're not going to stop creating 120, at least $120 billion a month uh, anytime soon which I think it's safe to assume is, means until at least the end of this year and probably much longer than that. So monetary conditions are going to remain very loose. Wasn't there some testimony in front of the Congress uh, recently where the Fed chairman said, you know, essentially had uh, forecasted that the next several years would be without rate increases? Yes. I mean, something to that effect. He said, you know, it's going to take a long time to get back to maximum employment. Um, and we're going to keep monetary policy very loose until we get back there. Interesting stuff. So, so yeah, let's let's move on to the bond market. So, I want to transition over there. What's happening there? Big uh, a spike in yields. What what is? Um, maybe you should start by giving us a very high level of what drives bond markets and its relationship to asset prices, and then maybe talk a little bit about the significance of what we just saw. 
Okay, well, there are two things you could say that drive the price of bonds. When the bond, when the bond prices go up, that means the yield on the bonds go down. So what, what moves the price of a bond? Well, the first thing is the supply and the demand for bonds. And the second thing is market expectations about the future of inflation. If the market thinks the inflation rate is going to be much higher, they're going to be less reluctant to buy bonds. Because if the inflation rate goes up, if you buy a bond, for instance, that yields 2% now, and the inflation rate moves up to 6%, then you're going to lose a lot of money on your bond because no one's going to want a bond paying 2% interest a year when you can get one at the same price paying 6% interest a year. Right. So but market reluctance to buy bonds is an important factor in driving up their price. And so at the beginning of this year, the, the yield on the 10-year government bond was less than 1%. It was 93 basis points. And it had been, I think the lowest it hit during the pandemic was 38 basis points, less than half of 1%. And last year, people, I think most people believe that the yield on the bonds would remain below 1% probably for quite a long time. But what we've seen is since the beginning of the year, the interest rates have moved up, the yields have moved up from 93 basis points to, well, on Wednesday last week, they had risen to one, almost 1.4. And then on Thursday, during the day, they jumped up another 20 basis points to above 1.6 at one point on Thursday. And then, which is a very large move, and then on Friday, they moved back down uh, to something like 1.42. And that's roughly where they stayed yesterday. They're rough, not too much different from that right now, last I looked. But the yield spiked up, and this uh, move happened very quickly. And that frightened the stock market. So we got to sell off in the stock market, which is, um, of course, from all-time highs. But we also saw gold prices go down because when interest rates go up, suddenly the cost of holding gold, which doesn't have any yield, doesn't pay any interest, the opportunity cost of holding gold becomes greater the, when interest rates move higher because you could buy a bond that actually pays you interest. So that's why gold has fallen. I think a lot of people must be very surprised about that. Just, uh, you know, and, and maybe pretty straightforward, but just want to make sure everybody's on board here. Explain why a spike in yields in the bond market would, would cause a sell-off in the market, in the, in the stock market. Okay, well, generally, the lower interest rates go, of course, it's cheaper to borrow money. Right. So individuals can borrow more money and use it to speculate and buy more houses or buy more stocks or buy more gold or all kinds of speculative assets. On the other hand, the higher that the interest rates go, if you start to see, say, an extreme example, if the interest rates went up to 10%, then you could just park your money in a bond and get 10% interest and not have to worry about what's happening with the stock market. So the stock people would move money out of stocks and into bonds. I bring this. Uh, I bring this up in part, Richard, because I think there's always some confusion on this. There's a basic, you know, difference between interest rates as defined by the Fed funds rate and then um, the interest rates that we see that are affected by the bond markets. In real estate, obviously, you know, when when we're locking in rates, we're based on the ten-year Treasury. And so not so much on the Fed funds rates. I was trying to dry, you know, just show that distinction a little bit. Yeah, that's important because the Fed directly sets the Fed funds rate. Now it's just, just above zero. So let's say it's effectively zero. But they do not directly control the 10-year government bond yield. That's determined, determined, in theory, at least by market forces. And so what we saw last week was market forces pushed the price of bonds down and push the yield on the bonds up, which people had not anticipated, certainly not at that speed. And this happened because of growing fears that there will be inflation resulting from all of the stimulus that we discussed earlier. Now, what the Fed does do and can do is the Fed can create money from thin air as much as it wants without limit, and it can buy government bonds. Right. And that's, it's buying $80 billion of government bonds every month. 
and an additional $40 billion of mortgage-backed securities every month. Now, if the bond yield continues moving higher, then that would cause the economy to slow down. And the Fed doesn't want the economy to slow down. It wants to put 10 million Americans back to work. Right. So if the 10-year bond yield started moving higher, say up to 1.6% or 1.7%, the Fed will very, it's quite likely that the Fed will come out and say, we're going to buy twice as many bonds this month as last month. Instead of buying $80 billion of government bonds, let's just make it a nice round number. We're going to buy $200 billion of government bonds today. And by doing that, and, and furthermore, they could say, in fact, we're going to buy as many government bonds as it takes to push the yield on the 10-year government bond back to 1%. And we're going to keep doing this for the next year so that the bond yield will be 1% all year long until December. And we'll keep you updated when we change our mind about that. That would be called yield curve control. Mm -hmm. That's what they do in Japan. They've been doing this very effectively now in Japan for two, three, coming up to four years, perhaps. So the Fed, while in theory, the yields, the bond prices and the bond yields are supposed to be moved by market forces. Well, in fact, that's no longer the case mm -hmm. because once the Fed adopted quantitative easing after the crisis of 2008, we've seen the Fed intervene again and again. And now the Fed has the ability and the will to manipulate the bond market, if you will, intervene in the bond market so that interest rates don't move too high. So it's so, almost sort of a dynamic quantitative easing now that's basically sort of responsive to whatever's happening you know, up and down. So they have the power to control the 10-year government bond yield at any level they want. Mm -hmm. And so far, they are on autopilot, they have said, of buying in total, they keep saying, at least $120 billion of bonds every month. But if the 10-year bond yield keeps moving up, then they will make an announcement and say, we're going, to, we're going to buy more than that. The yields are going up too quickly. We don't like it. We're going to stop it. And they have the power to control them at any level they want. So it's unlikely that the bond yields are going to keep moving up, at least moving up quickly. Now, maybe if they move up gradually over the next nine months, then fine. The market can absorb that. But if they were to keep moving up very, very rapidly, then it could cause a market panic a lot, there's a lot of speculation in this market, and there must be a lot of leverage. It could provoke some sort of panic through, through the markets that would have some sort of damaging impact on the economy overall. So they want, to, they want to avoid that. Now, a very good example of this is the U.S. Central Bank, of course, is not the only central bank in the world. Every country has one. And this week on Monday in Australia, the Central Bank of Australia jumped into the bond market there and bought twice as many bonds that day as they normally do because the yields were going up too quickly. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, that caused the yield on the 10-year Australian government bond to fall 25 basis points on Monday alone. So this is a very clear demonstration of the power of central banks to control bond yields at any level they want. And that's what the Fed will do if bond yields keep moving up too much too quickly. Next topic I want to cover. So can you talk a little bit about the concept of bank reserves as it relates to liquidity and maybe explain kind of what the concept is and what that means to us right now? People have a hard time getting their minds around the idea of bank reserves. When quantitative easing, back in 2007, for instance, there were hardly any bank reserves at all. The reason banks were required to hold reserves in the past is because the government was afraid that there would be a, a, a run on the banks. So the banks were required to set aside a certain amount of their deposits as either cash in their own vaults in their offices or else deposits with the Fed. All, this, all the commercial banks have a bank account at the Fed and they can hold their reserves there. But over time, this, the amount of reserves that the banks were required to hold was reduced and reduced and reduced and reduced until 2007. The banks hardly had any reserves whatsoever. Now, the banks don't like holding reserves because before 2008, they couldn't earn any interest on those reserves. So they like to keep them as small as possible. 
And so they lobbied to reduce the amount of reserves they had to hold. But the Fed also agreed. They said, okay, if there's a banking panic, no problem. We'll just create money and inject it into the financial system, and that will resolve the bank panic. So when the crisis started in 2008, there were hardly any reserves. But lo and behold, we had a massive financial system panic, system-wide panic. And there were no reserves for the banks to lean on. Had the Fed not intervened through quantitative easing, the entire financial system, all the banks would have failed and everything would have collapsed. So the Fed started injecting liquidity into the financial system. Now, the way the Fed does this is it buys a government bond, typically a government bond, from the bank. And so let's say say a billion-dollar bond. Or let's make it bigger, $100 billion. It buys $100 billion from the bank. It buys $100 billion of government bonds from the banking system, a bank, let's say. So the, the Fed gets $100 billion worth of bonds. And how does it pay for it? It pays for it by making a deposit into the reserve account that that bank holds at the Fed. And by making this deposit, the Fed is not depositing money that already existed. It is creating the money. The act of making that deposit creates the money, mm-hmm. money that didn't exist before. So bank reserves go up by $100 billion in my example. Now, what do the banks do with these reserves? They can do anything they want with them. They can buy stocks. They can make loans. They can buy bonds. Uh, but typically, they will go out and buy more bonds. And so when they buy more bonds, then that allows the government to take the proceeds from those bond sales and spend that money and stimulate the economy. And then, so explain sort of the significance of what's going on right now. Okay. So a lot of people have the impression that when the money goes in, because bank reserves are going up, they have the impression that the quantitative easing doesn't work. They have the impression that the money just gets stuck in the banks as reserves. But that's completely wrong. That is entirely inaccurate. And one way to try to understand this, I think it helps. The concept of digital money, the Fed is just essentially entering digits into the bank accounts of the banks that it's crediting, right? But it, And that's hard to get your mind around. But instead of that, imagine that the Fed bought $100 billion worth of bonds from the banking system and it paid for them with pennies, really with pennies. There would be a mountain of pennies, right, that the banks would hold if, if the Fed paid. Yeah. So rather than bank reserves, the banks would have uh, truly a mountain mm-hmm. of pennies. Now, so the banks have the ability to spend those pennies any way they want. They can, as I said, they can make loans. So let's say they make a loan. Whoever they make the loan to, that person gets a lot of pennies, and he deposits those pennies back into his bank account. So the number of pennies in the banking system remains the same. There's still a mountain of pennies. The pennies don't go away just because the banks lend them or buy stocks with them. They stay in the banking system. The only way the pennies go away is if the Fed reverses quantitative easing. In other words, if it does quantitative tightening, which means that it sells the bonds that it has already back to the banks. If it sells the bonds, if the Fed sells the bonds that it owns already, back to the banks, then the banks have to pay the Fed. Those pennies would then go back to the Fed. The Fed destroys those pennies, and there are fewer reserves left in the banking system. This is the only way the the reserves go away permanently. Right. But there are a few other factors that affect the level of reserves. So one factor is the amount of physical dollars that there are, are in circulation. The more dollars there are in circulation, that reduces the level of bank reserves because when the public wants to hold more dollars, they go to their bank, they withdraw dollars from their bank. And if the bank then needs more dollars, more physical dollars, it goes to the Fed and it it buys dollars from the Fed and it pays for them with bank reserves. The Fed gives the banks the dollars and it takes money out of those commercial banks reserve accounts at the Fed. So that's one factor. If the amount of dollars in circulation goes up, that causes the amount of reserves to go down. But there's another important factor, and this is the most important factor right now. The U.S. government also has a bank account 
at the Fed. It's called the Treasury General Account, the TGA. Most people are not familiar with this. I have not really been familiar with this for very long, to tell you the truth. And that's because typically in the past, there was very little money in this government bank account at the Fed. But this is the government's main bank account. When, it, when the government gets money through tax collection or by selling bonds, this money goes into the Treasury general account at the Fed, the government's bank account at the Fed. And when the government spends money on all the things that it spends money on, the money comes out of this bank account at the Fed. Well, up until 2008, the amount of money in the Fed was, it was just a few billion dollars, a very low amount. But after 2008, the number started getting much larger. It moved up at 200 billion, say around 2013. And then by 2016, it was up to 400 billion. And it moved up and down around there for the next four years, around between 400 billion and 100 billion, let's say. But then in 2020, when the pandemic started, suddenly the amount of money in the Treasury Department, the government's bank account, shot up to $1.8 trillion. Now, that was totally off the charts. And so why did that happen? Well, what happened is the Treasury Department raised a lot of money through selling bonds, trillions of dollars. And they did that because they expected Congress to pass a second stimulus bill in the second half of last year. You remember in the middle of last year, everyone expected a new stimulus bill. People were talking about $2 trillion, maybe $3 trillion, and they were expecting it fast. So the Treasury Department went out and sold a lot of bonds and waited and waited. And the Congress didn't get around to passing the new stimulus bill until sometime in the middle of December. And then it was, even then it was less than expected. It was only $900 billion. So the government went out and raised a lot of money, but Congress hadn't authorized spending that money yet until December. So the money ended up in the government's bank account at the Fed, and it peaked at $1.8 trillion a few months ago. Well, it's now down to $1.4 trillion. So when the government raised this money, how did it do it? The government borrowed money. And when it borrowed money, whoever it borrowed the money from, that reduced the level of money they had in their bank accounts. So that reduced the level of reserves in the financial system. And as long as now the government is sitting on this $1.4 trillion of reserves of money, and that reduces the level of bank reserves, it reduces the level of liquidity in the system. But the thing that's important now is the Treasury Department has told us that they are going to start spending this money because we got the stimulus bill, $900 billion in December. We're soon going to have the new $1.9 trillion stimulus bill. So in their most recent announcement, the Treasury Department has said they're going to reduce the level of money in this account to $900 billion, from 1.4 now to $900 billion at the end of March and to $500 billion by the middle of June. So what that means is that's going to inject $940 billion into the economy as the government spends this money. And that's going to cause the bank reserves to go up by $940 billion between now and the middle of the year. So more reserves means more liquidity, and that could lead to an even more pronounced asset bubble. Is that right? Right. So we're looking at a situation now. So they've only made forecasts about how much money they're going to spend up to the middle of the year, to June. At that point, they'll still have $500 billion in this bank account that they could spend going forward. And this brings us back to bond prices, the supply and demand for bonds, right? As the government spends this money, how are they going to spend it? Well, we know they're going to send out checks to households and to businesses, right? So households and businesses are going to have more money. And they're going to start, some of them are going to buy stocks with it and speculate in other ways, the Robin Hood crowd. So the more money the government spends, that means bank reserves, that increases the amount of liquidity in the financial system. In other words, it increases the amount of bank reserves that exist. So we're looking at bank reserves are now $3.4 trillion, but they're going to go very much higher over the next several quarters. For instance, we know the Fed is going to create $120 billion every month. 
So if we look out just to the fiscal year ends in, in September, September 30th, that's when the fiscal year ends for the government's budget. That's seven months from now. If we multiply seven months times $120 billion a month, that's $840 billion that the Fed is going to create between now and the end of September. So that alone is going to take the amount of reserves up from $3.4 trillion to $4.2 trillion. So that's, that's seemed baked in. That's going to be an enormous surge in reserves just by itself, an enormous increase in liquidity just by itself. Now, on top of that, if the government does, in fact, run down the money in its bank account at the Fed to $500 billion, even by the middle of this year, as they've said they would do, that would add another $940 billion to bank reserves, taking total bank reserves up to $5.1 trillion from $3.4 trillion now. And if, for example, they, the government were to spend all the money in that bank account, all $1.4 trillion it has in its bank account at the Fed, that would take bank reserves up to $5.6 trillion, which is 68% more than it is at the moment. It would be an enormous surge in the level of reserves, an enormous surge in the amount of liquidity that there is in the financial system. And it has the potential to create an extraordinary financial bubble this kind of yeah, li- liquidity. What's the time frame for some of this? I mean, are we talking about something that occurs within the next year or two years? Or Well, yes. So every quarter, the Treasury Department publishes uh, its estimates of how much it's going to borrow and how much it's going to have in its bank account at the end of every quarter. So what they've told us, we get the data every week on how much is in their bank account. Right now it's $1.44 trillion. But they've said they're going to run that down to $800 billion by the end of March, this month. Right. And then run it down to $500 billion by the middle of the year. Does the impact of that, is it pretty directly correlated to, you know, the time that that it's injected? Or is there a little bit of a delay? So what this means is by running down their account by June, they run it down to $500 billion. How do they run it down? They run it down by spending the money in right. that account. Right. That would that mean that would mean they would spend nine hundred and forty billion dollars. How would they spend it? They would spend it by sending out checks to individuals and households and businesses and in all other ways that the government spends money, flooding the system with new money. Right. On top of the eight hundred and forty billion dollars the Fed is going to create over the next seven months and pump into the financial systems through quantitative easing. So what moves bonds? Well, one fundamentally, it's supply and demand. Mm-hmm. So on what we potentially see is people in the financial markets are going to be flooded with a new supply of liquidity as a result of the government running down its bank account at the Fed. And this has the potential to create an enormous new surge in demand for government bonds, for instance. So right now, there seems to be a concern that there won't be enough demand for the bonds. But what we may end up seeing is that there's so much liquidity in the financial system that the demand far exceeds what people are anticipating. And that would push up the price of the bonds and push yields back down to a much lower level. So rather than fundamentals causing the yields on bonds to move higher, we may see the exact opposite. There may be so much liquidity in the financial markets as a result of this combined with quantitative easing that it could push bond prices much higher and bond yields much lower. And of course, the same forces, surge in liquidity throughout the financial system could also potentially push uh, the stock prices very significantly higher and gold prices and everything, feeding this crazy speculative frenzy that has already been going on for months. It really seems to have the potential to become much, much wilder than it has been already, it seems to me. One last concept I want to talk about um, is the concept of a buyer strike. How does this relate to any of this? Okay, well, so what we saw last week in the bond market was people were reluctant to buy bonds because they were afraid that the inflation rate was going to go up. Right. And so they simply just stepped back and there were fewer buyers. And because there were fewer buyers, this caused the price of bonds to fall and the bond yields to go, to go up swiftly. 
So that's when people talk about a, a buyer strike in the bond market, that's what they mean. People just simply refuse to buy the government bonds. And so bond prices fall and bond yields go up. Now, this is also something uh, related to the concept of bond vigilantes. People talk, used to talk about the bond market. If the, if the government started spending too much money or if the Fed started printing too much money, people in the bond market could become afraid that inflation would pick up and they would stop buying bonds and that would push the bond prices down and the yields up. And so they could, these bond vigilantes, to a certain extent, limited fiscal policy. It limited how much money the government could spend and it limited how much money the Fed could create. But all those ideas are no longer valid now because of quantitative easing. The Fed has the ability to create money and buy as many bonds as it wants. So the Fed can be the strike breaker. If there's a buyer's strike, the Fed can break the strike simply by creating more money and buying the bonds itself. So the Fed, make no mistake, the Fed can control the 10-year government bond yield at any level it wants for as long as it wants. So in sum, right now, we have all the ingredients for a big boom, big bubble. And so from that perspective, I guess the short-term message to investors like us is, well, I mean, you, you could be in for a, you could be in for a good ride up. Who knows what happens after that? Um, the crash, any kind of crash that ensues after that. Uh, but, uh, but is that a fair assessment? Well, so my policy is I, I don't make specific recommendations. I sure. don't tell people to go out and buy stocks or sell stocks or anything else. I just provide the analysis of how things look at the macro level, the amount of liquidity in the system, credit growth, and the, the big, big drivers that affect not only the economy, but also asset prices sure. across the board on stocks. And what I'm seeing now is with the Fed creating $120 billion a month, multiply that over the next seven months till the end of September, that's $840 billion more dollars. Right. And if the Fed, if the Treasury runs down its bank account, you can add $1.4 trillion more to that. So, you know, what is that? One point, it's close to $2.4 trillion, $2.4 trillion over the next seven months, potentially. Right. And increasing the amount of reserves in the banking system by 68%. Now, if this happens, this is going to create an extraordinary expansion of liquidity, which seems to me, based on all past experience, should keep pushing asset prices higher. Now, of course, the world is a very uncertain place. Mm-hmm. Many things can change on a dime. You know, who would have expected this pandemic? Anything can happen. Right. Um, the Fed could do a 180 degree turn and say, you know, sorry, we've changed our mind. We're not going to buy $120 billion anymore. That seems unlikely. They've been telling us that they would. Or other uncertainties could occur. So you can, there are no sure bets. Uh, when you make an investment, you're always... Sure, of uh, course. Making, it's always a gamble. Right. There are no certainties. But if the scenario that I just described plays out, which is based on what the Fed has told us it's going to do, and based also on what the Treasury Department has told us it's going to do, it seems to me that there's going to be a flood of liquidity over the right. next six, seven months. And that seems to me would be likely to push asset prices much higher right. unless something else intervenes and stops that from happening one way or the other. Fantastic. Um, Richard, is there anything else that we ought to know before we take a break from this for the next few months? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you know, that, that's the really big issue. Yeah. Um, will there be inflation? Yeah. Is, is that going to force the Fed to tighten monetary policy? And the answer to that is, you know, the Fed's not going to tighten this year. And meanwhile, this flood of liquidity has the potential to push interest rates lower rather than allowing them to go higher. And on the other hand, if they start to go, if interest rates started to go higher, the Fed would stop that from happening probably by uh, creating more money and buying them. So this, this seems like this has been a 
much more complicated conversation than we normally have. <laughs> and, well, and, and it's true. It's true because reserves yeah. are, it's hard to understand reserves. Which is but, what I was going to get to next, Richard, is I think the, the, the thing with investors is that, yeah, this is complicated stuff, but I think in order to, uh, of course, Richard isn't giving advice, but I think the more you understand this, the more you can, you know, make decisions for yourself. I mean, I listen to what Richard says and I put that together with some some of my street uh, sense, which is that there's a heck of a lot of uh, pent up demand to spend from people. And to me, uh, I'm looking at the next, you know, next year, um, you know, especially as we come out of this COVID uh, lockdown and things start to open up is a, is a real uh, boom to the economy. So I think it's important. And that brings us to the newsletter, because I think that is a key message here. If you want to understand this stuff, I think, um, you know, take a look at Richard's uh, newsletter macro watch which really you know starts with the basics and gives you a foundation and then it'll give you an opportunity to actually understand some of these things that we're talking about at a, at a deeper level richard how do we how do we look into that how do we sign up yeah, so macro watch is a video newsletter and every couple of weeks i upload i make a new video it's basically me doing a powerpoint presentation so, for example, a few days ago, I published one on this subject about the Treasury running down its bank account at the Fed and how that's going to impact liquidity. And now I did that with, I think, 39 charts. So I've got lots of charts. I've got bullet points. It's a lot easier to understand this sort of concept when, you, <laughs> when I explain yeah. it to you in a 20-minute video with charts in front of you. It's not that complicated if you see the charts. So I, I explain things very clearly in these macro watch presentations. And it focuses on the most important factors that drive the economy and the financial markets. And the, the most important factors, in my opinion, are credit growth and liquidity. For instance, liquidity coming out of the Fed, quantitative easing, and how that's likely to impact all the financial markets, the stocks, bonds, commodities, and currency values. So that's what MacroWatch is. If you subscribe, you'll receive one new video every couple of weeks from me. And you'll also have immediate access to all of the videos that I've made in the past. MacroWatch started in October 2013, so it's been going on for about seven and a half years. There's something like 75 hours worth of videos now you can watch. It covers essentially every important topic on macroeconomics that you can imagine, and including a number of different courses that, that spell these things out very clearly. So I hope your listeners will, will check, check this out by visiting my website, which is richardduncaneconomics.com, richardduncaneconomics.com. And if you would like to subscribe, I'd like to offer your listeners a 50% discount. Just, they should just click on the subscribe button. And when prompted, put in the coupon code, the discount coupon code formula. And if they use the formula discount code, they can subscribe at a 50% discount. So I hope they'll check that out. And at the very least, they, if they visit richardduncaneconomics.com, they can sign up for my free blog and follow my work yeah. that way without subscribing. Well, I think it's a, it's a tremendous value. Um, so I, I do recommend uh, people check it out, and particularly if you got really lost during this podcast, because that, that means you need to sharpen up on some of these concepts. Not that they're easy and that you should have easily gotten them, but you know, being able to understand this is of great value. It'll make you a better investor, make you feel better about your decisions. Richard, I want to thank you again for being on Wealth Formula Podcast, and hopefully next time we have you on, hopefully in, the next, uh, in another three months or so, we'll have good news to share and we'll all be parting like it's 1999. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. That would be really, really great. I can't wait to begin traveling again. That's right. Me too. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. As I said, it is probably a little complicated, but that's okay, right? Listen, as I promised, I want to play for you now uh, my daughter, Camilla, I wanted to play her song. It's called The Worst Year Ever. This is the first song that she produced. She wants to be the next uh, Taylor Swift. Uh, it's a fun little song. Uh, if you have Spotify, look her up. It's uh, under her middle name, her first name and middle name, Camilla Sabine, S-A-B-I-N-E. And it's called Worst Year Ever. And if you can... Go on there and like it, especially if you like the song, obviously. So I'm, I'm going to just let this run 
And that'll be it. And I'll see you uh, next week on Wealth Formula Podcast. Started out with pretty much nothing, and it was seeming to be the best year ever. The domino effect that was coming, soon enough it would be the worst year ever. Cause little did we know, but we were on that right. A helicopter crashes under Kobe Bryant's life. Little did we know that this would still be happening. We all thought that it would be no more than just two weeks. It's the worst year ever, it's the first year ever I've had the worst year ever, it's just the first year everyone agrees So it's not just me, 2021 is crazy close, will it be better? No, I mean never say never Taylor Swift, I think, denies that though Do you remember that song that had all those ever? All the things from 2020 won't just go away I believe in this occasion, we just have to wait Patience isn't something that belongs to everyone And out of all the people, I can't be the only one It's the worst year ever It's the worst year ever I've had the worst year ever It's just the worst year everyone agrees So it's not just me Pretending it's fine, it's the worst year, wouldn't you say? I wish it could end right here today. It's the worst year. Haven't you heard? Cause around the world, that's the word. That's the word. It's the worst year ever. It's the worst year ever. I call the worst year ever. Yeah, everyone agrees So it's not just me 